0: Well, this morning, we are going to conclude our series from the book of Acts. We have been in this series for a total of 18 weeks. And my prayer is that that you have learned and you have been blessed by the many things that we have shared from God's word. And And I'd like to say just how important it is that we remember the things that we have learned about the early New Testament church. Because if we are to be the church that that God has called us to be, as we minister in this community, in the name of Jesus, here in Red Bluff, we must follow their approach. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we will never do do different ways of doing ministry. I mean, after all, we are living in the 21st century. But I firmly believe at the same time that we must never stray from the principles of church structure that is found in the New Testament model that we've been studying. Uh, Otherwise, I believe that, that we are in danger of forgetting those timeless tasks that God has called us, his church, to fulfill. Well, the last time that we were together two weeks ago, Paul had arrived to Jerusalem, and if you'll recall, I mentioned to you that he was beaten severely by a crowd. Not only was he beaten, he was also arrested. The Roman authorities wanted to get uh, to the bottom of why all of these throngs of people, as well as the Jewish religious leaders were so vehemently against the apostle Paul. And so they allowed Paul to uh, address the mob who were so vehemently standing against him. So Paul literally seized the moment, he shared his testimony, including his Damascus Road experience, his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he proclaimed that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. But the crowd cried out, rid the world of him. He is not fit to live. So the commander ordered that Paul would be taken to the barracks in order to be flogged and interrogated. But unlike the last time we talked about, when he got arrested and he was beaten with rods, Paul made it clear this time that he was a Roman citizen. So the, commanding, uh, the, the commander scheduled a meeting with Paul and the Sanhedrin. But things only went from bad to worse through that meeting. A plot was devised at that point to kill the apostle Paul. Knowing this, The commander gave Paul military protection and he provided him safe travel to go see Governor Felix. So Paul had a trial before Felix that went absolutely nowhere. So Felix sends Paul on to Festus. These guys were passing Paul around like a hot potato because they could not find in any way in which he had broken the law. But at the same time, you must understand they were trying to be sensitive to the concerns of the Jews who the, the Jews and the religious leaders of the Jewish people, those who they had governed. Well, Paul explains to Festus that he has broken no law, and since he cannot receive justice, he requests to have his case heard before Caesar. So Festus sends Paul to Agrippa, And when Paul speaks with Agrippa, he once again shares his entire conversion story and Agrippa even suggests that Paul is trying to convert him to Christianity. Well, Agrippa was actually ready to release the apostle Paul, but because Paul had formally requested to be heard by Caesar, that's exactly where Agrippa sent him. So Paul and many other prisoners were put on a ship headed towards Rome. And we don't have time to read all the details this morning, but you do have time, and I would highly encourage you to read this story because it was a horrific trip on the open seas through multiple ports with seasonal high winds and and, and storms with cargo being thrown overboard to lighten the vessel and great hunger and great fear for all of those who were on board. You name it, they experienced it until eventually they shipwrecked. In fact, in Acts 28.1, Luke tells us this, once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. Now Malta was located about 50 miles south of Sicily. It was a rugged island about 18 miles long and about eight miles wide. In Paul's day, the island's name was actually Melita, which was a Canaanite word for refuge. Luke refers to the residents of this island in Greek as natives or as barbaros. It's a word where we get our word barbarian. In fact, your Bible may even use that word uh, in its translation in the very first verse, verse one. But this doesn't mean that these islanders were barbarians. You see, the, the Greeks of that day called anyone barbarian if they spoke any language other than Greek. They did this because to them, other languages sounded like a cacophony of sounds in which they couldn't distinguish any words. Kind of sounds like me with my hearing problem, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I have a hard time hearing sometimes low talking conversations. I they, just a bunch of sounds to me. I'm working on it. I got some AIDS, I just gotta put them in my ears, I guess. It's a pride issue, apparently. I'm, I'm working on it, okay? In fact, they thought the noises that other people made speaking other languages sounded like a variations of the sound barbar, hence the word barbaros. And I point this out to you because I want you to understand that the people who lived on this island were anything but barbarians, they were good people. In fact, they helped Malta to live up to its name as a place of refuge because they were, uh, they were very compassionate towards Paul and his fellow castaways. Look at Acts 28.2, it be up on the screen. Luke tells us this, the islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. You'll also look at 20, verse 20, or chapter 28, verse 10. Luke goes on to say this. They honored us in many ways. And when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. So for the next three months, the Maltons took care of Paul and his companions by feeding them, providing them shelter, and no doubt clothing for them to wear. Basically, they helped these people to recuperate from their near-death ordeal out on the sea. And this helped them to prepare for their final leg of their journey while they rested on Malta and waited for the winter storm season to pass by so they could finally move on and get to Rome. But please understand, these months on the island were not like a vacation for Paul. I mean, he, I mean, he didn't spend all of his time sipping coconut juice under palm trees on the beach. He used it as a time to minister to the Maltans themselves. For example, the head of the, the Roman government in Malta was a man named Publius. In fact, if you look at Acts 28, Verses seven and nine, it says this. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. So these were busy months of compassionate ministry for the Apostle Paul that I am sure opened the door for Paul to share the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And you can be assured that he took full advantage of every opportunity he was given. Well, when the early spring finally arrived, the weather grew favorable and so Paul and the prisoners boarded another Alexandrian grain ship and they finally began on their final leg of their journey to Rome. So if you'll take your Bibles, if you don't already have them open, go, to, go with to, to Acts chapter 28. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew pocket in front of you, or the, the uh, scriptures will be up on the screens behind me, and you can follow along. I'll be reading from the New International Version, and we will start at verse 11. The scriptures say, after three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. Now, let me explain something. Castor and Pollux were names of the twin sons of Zeus, one of the gods they worshiped, and they were revered as protectors of men on the sea. And because of this, many Roman ships bore their image as a plea for safety while they were out on the waters. On to verse 12. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day the south wind came up and on the following day we reached Piccioli. There we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them and so we came to Rome. Now I want you to try to understand how Paul must have felt at this point in time finally having made it to Rome, since Paul has wanted to preach the gospel there for quite a few years. Earlier in the book of Acts, he said, after I have been to Jerusalem, Macedonian, and Achaia, I must visit Rome also. And in Romans chapter one, he had also said, I am so eager to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome. So, for years of not being able to get to Rome, Paul chose to do the next best thing. He wrote the believers there. He kind of became a long distance friend with these people, sort of like an international pen pal, if you will. He heard about them through mutual acquaintances, and in admiration of their courageous faith, he had written them a letter. It was his doctrinal masterpiece that you might be familiar with, the epistle of Paul to the Romans. And now, after this harrowing journey on the high seas, Paul finally arrives to meet them face to face. And I'm certain that he was thrilled at that moment, but these Roman believers were equally as excited to finally meet Paul. In fact, many of them journeyed several miles down the famous Appian Way to greet him. Let's move on to verse 15. It says, the brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming and they traveled as far as the forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, my brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and to talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, we have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our people who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you but we wanna hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. Of course, he's talking about Christianity here. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made his final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their with their hearts, and turn. And I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. After he said this, the Jews left, arguing vigorously among themselves. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, as I said when I began this morning, we have learned a lot through our study in the book of Acts. For example, we studied the lives of some of the first Christian leaders, amazing men like like Peter and Barnabas and Philip and and James and Paul. We also learned about the power of prayer. And uh, if you'll remember the answer to, to the prayers of the church when Peter was miraculously released from his prison cell at the Antonio Fortress because of the power of prayer. Philip taught about the kinds of attitudes that we need in order to be successful as personal evangelists with his witness to the Ethiopian eunuch. You probably remember that story. And then speaking of evangelists, as we looked at Peter's experience with Cornelius, the Roman centurion who wanted to become a Christian, it helped us all to see the evils of prejudice. It reminded us that we are all equally in need of God's gracious love. We are all equally the focus of Jesus' love. And as I said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. But I could go on and on teaching us about everything that God has taught us through these 18 weeks, because every week it was a new story, a new experience. But due to time constraints this morning, I do wanna touch and review three main truths that we covered in this series. And these are truths that I wanna be sure that we as a people, that we as a church never forget. And the first thing is this, we have seen the power of a healthy church. Now, when I say healthy, I'm referring to a group of believers who show by their actions that they truly acknowledge Jesus Christ as head over all. They aren't like a body that is plagued with a neurological illness whereby the body doesn't obey the the signals from the brain. No, healthy churches obediently yield to Jesus' will in all things. And their acknowledgement of his headship is most clearly seen in their relationships. They are relationships that reflect the way that Jesus relates to each one of us. In short, they acted like Jesus did towards each other. They didn't just treat the apostles one way because they were men of God that maybe were held at a higher level of esteem. They treated everyone, one another, like Jesus would treat them. And this is vitally important because it leads the lost world to recognize Jesus within them. And a result of that is a healthy church that literally draws the lost to Jesus Christ. It's just like what Jesus promised in John 12, 32, when he said, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. In her book titled Saints and Snobs, author Marian Jacobson refers to this when she writes, people are not persuaded, they're attracted. We communicate far more by what we are than by what we say. We saw this important principle of church growth modeled in the first church in Jerusalem. In fact, in the second and the fourth chapters of this book, it tells us that the first believers did indeed acknowledge Christ as head. And this was clearly seen in their Christ-like attitudes and actions towards one another. I mean, they were not a perfect church. There is no such thing as a perfect church, but their corporate dedication to the careful study of the apostles' teaching and to the worship, the true worship of God, well, it gave them, it created within them a very blessed fellowship. And it was one that God used in a powerful way to draw the lost into a redemptive relationship with Jesus. Let me share a couple of examples. In Acts 2.45, it says, they sold property and possessions and gave it to anyone who had need. In Acts 4.32, it says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And because they related in this selfless kind of a way, and because these first believers lifted up Christ in their sacrificial relationships, the church naturally grew. In Acts 2.4.7, it says, and the Lord added to their number Daily those who were being saved. Think about it. This first group of believers were a powerful witness for the love of the Lord. And this was in spite of the fact that they had gathered right under the noses of the Jewish religious leaders. I'm talking about the same leaders who plotted to have Jesus killed. And Luke sums up this important principle of church health in Acts 4.32, when he refers to the church, the first church, and he says this, all the believers were one in heart and mind. They were one, why? Because they each acknowledged that Jesus was the head as well as the heart of the church. They allowed him to use their flesh in in lovingly ways to minister to the world around them. And we must remember this lesson that we learned from Acts and commit to doing the same thing. If we are to be, if we are to do everything that God has called us to do here at High Point, we must do the same things. We must realize that in order for our church to be a powerful witness, God wants us to be, we must strive to obey Jesus in everything that we say and even more importantly, in everything that we do because as someone once put it, the world will never be one to Christ until we are one in Christ. Max Licato writes about two sisters named Ruth and Verena Katie, who were born as Siamese twins. And he expresses how clearly this oneness was represented through their daily lives. If you'll allow me to read you a section from his book. He says, since their birth in 1984, they have shared much, just like any twins. They have shared a bike, a bed, a room, and toys. They've shared meals and stories and TV shows and birthdays. They shared the same womb before they were born and the same room after they were born. But the bond between Ruthie and Verena goes even further. They share more than toys and treats. They share the same heart. Their bodies are fused together from the sternum to the waist. Though they have separate nervous systems and distinct personalities, they are sustained by the same singular three-chambered heart. Neither could survive without the other. Since separation is not an option, cooperation becomes an obligation. They have learned to work together. Take walking, for example. Their mother assumed they would take turns walking backwards or forward. It made sense to her that they would alternate one facing the front, and the other the back, but the girls had an even better idea. They learned to walk sideways, almost like dancing, and they dance in the same direction. They've learned to make up for each other's weaknesses. Marina loves to eat, but Ruthie finds sitting at the table too dull. Ruthie may eat only a half a cup of fruit a day. No problem. Her sister will eat enough for both of them. It's not unusual for her to have three bowls of cereal, two cups of yogurt, and two pieces of toast for breakfast. Ruthie tends to get restless while her sister eats and has been known to throw a bowl of ice cream across the room. This could lead to discipline for her, but it also has consequences for her sister. When one has to sit in the corner, so does the other. The innocent party doesn't complain. Both learned early that they are stuck together for the good and for the bad. I think that this story gives us a great picture of what the local church should be like. We are to be very much like one body, united in love as we faith face both the good and the bad things in this life. Like these twins, we are here to bear one another's burdens. We are to look at one another and say, if you've got a problem, I've got a problem. If you're hurting, that means I am hurting as well. Like these two girls, we literally walk through life together, pooling our strengths in a way that makes up for our weaknesses, and we have many, don't we? Yes, we do. We do this because like the Katie twins, we have the same father, we have the same head, we have the same heart. You see, Jesus' heart beats here among us, here at High Point, and it is a heart for the lost sheep in our community. As long as we remember this number one principle, as long as we work in response to Jesus' will, as long as we, we strive to be of one mind and one heart, then like the early church in Jerusalem, we will be a powerful church. We will be a church that God uses to do amazing things for his kingdom. We will be a church that draws lost people to Jesus Christ. Write this down and etch it into your brain because we must never forget this truth that the book of Acts has taught us. Well, the second thing that we've learned about this study in the book of Acts is we have learned a great deal about the power of the Holy Spirit. The best illustration of this is seen in the lives of the disciples themselves. I mean, there is no way on their own that they would have been capable to fulfill the task that Jesus had given them In Acts 1.8, when he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. From a purely human standpoint, it was ridiculous to think that those 11 men who were fearfully hiding behind closed doors in the upper room, could be his witnesses in Jerusalem, much less in Judea or Samaria or to the uttermost parts of the earth. I mean, their courage was just too weak. If you recall, they didn't do so well in the hours and in the days surrounding Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. They fled in 11 different directions. Only John came back and they not only failed in their public witness, but they failed in their private loyalty. They failed in their personal faith. The best example of this was seen in the behavior of their leader, Peter, who you know vehemently even denied knowing who Christ was. Plus, there were things that these men and women still did not understand about the kingdom of God, even after 40 days of instruction at the feet of our Savior, our risen Savior, after his resurrection. I mean, there was no way on their own that this ragtag group of, of common men could fulfill Jesus' commission. And yet, our study shows that they did exactly that. And how did they do that? Because the power of the Holy Spirit was in them. They were able to do this because they received the power and they received the guidance and the wisdom from the source, the source, the Holy Spirit of the living God. His spirit was living inside of each one of them and his power was at, his dispo- at their disposal and they were able to turn the world upside down. In fact many have suggested that a better title for Luke's book would be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because it is a record of what the first Christians were able to accomplish as they were empowered by the indwelling Spirit of God. Well, the same Holy Spirit power high point is available to you today in the 21st century. It is available to each and every Christian. When we repent of our sin and we ask Jesus to become the Lord of our life, he does. And from that point on, just as Jesus promised in Matthew twenty-eight twenty, and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So as Christians, and when you think about the Holy Spirit that indwells us, we can relate to a famous quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson when he said, what lies behind us? and what lies before us are tiny matters to what lies within us. Do you think he knew what he was talking about when he said that? I don't know if he was a Christian or not, but if he did, he understood the power of God's spirit in us. And furthermore, never forget what 1 John 4 says, greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. And doesn't it also say somewhere, like maybe Ephesians 1.19, how tremendous is the power available to us who believe in God? Yes, it does, it says that. (laughs) You know, too many local churches fail to do anything significant for God because they ignore the instructions from our Lord. What I mean by that is, They only attempt to do things that they know they can do in their own power. If we as a church do things that are only available through our own power, we are sunk. We will never be a New Testament church that God called us to be. And, And so churches today don't ever try anything significant out of fear of failure. And unfortunately, the result of that is that many churches have become monuments to past glory. Oh, they still look like a church, but they've become nothing more than a social club. They don't do what the church was called to do. They haven't become what the church was designed to become. And I don't want that to be the story of High Point Assembly. These churches are weak. These churches are powerless. And my prayer is that this study has taught us here at High Point that we can avoid this same fate. That is as long as we obey the head, Jesus, and remember that we can do all things through him who gives us the strength to do them. And God will do amazing things, exciting things through you and I, as long as we obey him, especially when he calls us to do those tasks that seem like they're beyond our reach. Listen to these words from Vance Havner. We are not going to move this world by criticism of it. Oh, are we good at that or what? Nor conformity to it, but by the combustion within it of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. In fact, doesn't the Bible say it's not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord? Yes, it does. I can confirm that for you. And listen to these powerful words written by the late Bill Bright who said, we serve a great God. Why should we not attempt to do great things for him? Amen? Well, that's what this church here is going to continue to do. We're going to reach out in as many ways possible to the lost in this community and show them the love and the heart of Jesus Christ. And you know what? People will get saved. And people have been getting saved. Amen? Amen. Don't ever view anything that we do here as unimportant or something that you can't get behind. Our motivation for doing it is to win people to Jesus. And sometimes you just have to hang with them so they can find out that you're a normal human being, that you can relate to their problems, that you got struggles just like they do, that you got got ups just like they do, that you got weaknesses just like they do, and they go, oh, maybe these Christians don't think they're better than I am, which unfortunately is, is something big out there. A lot of people don't like us because they think we look down on them. We are never to look down on the lost. We have to remember we were once there, and if it wasn't for the grace of God, we wouldn't be where we are today. The third major point from the book of Acts is we have learned the unstoppable power of the gospel, the gospel message of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In our survey of this book, we have clearly seen in spite of repeated persecutions, in spite of continued opposition by many of the Jewish religious leaders, including the ones who met Paul here in Rome, in spite of hardship, of of storms and shipwrecks, in spite of a poisonous snake bite that Paul received while building a fire when he first landed in Malta and he shook it off and it didn't even affect him. In spite of all of this, the good news of the gospel spread just as Jesus said it would spread to Jerusalem and to Judea and to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And it did so in such a way that by the time we get to Acts chapter 28, Christianity has become a world religion. It has. And all of this shows us that just as Jesus said, In Matthew chapter six, nothing will stop the spread of the gospel. Not even, he said, the gates of hell will prevail against it. And we see a perfect example of this here in chapter 28 when Paul is under arrest. He is confined to to an apartment or a home, chained 24 hours a day to a Roman soldier, a member of the crack praetorian guard. Now you might think that this small inconvenience might stop Paul from doing what God had sent him to Rome to do in the first place, to share the good news of the gospel, but it didn't. And one thing you have to understand about the Praetorian Guard is that they were not just your run of the mill soldiers. They were the very elite Imperial guard of Rome. They were like the best of the best Marines. They were like special forces, these guys. This unit had been founded by Roman Emperor Augustus himself, and it consisted of 10,000 hand-picked soldiers. Again, they were the best of the best. They were literally the military power behind the throne. In fact, it was the prefect or the, or the commanding officer of the Praetorian Guard that Paul was handed over to when he arrived. It's pretty interesting, huh? Can you can you begin to see the picture here? Listen to these next these statements. It's powerful. 24 hours a day in 6-hour shifts each, one of these select soldiers was chained to the apostle Paul. They were forced to be with him. They heard all the conversations Paul had with his visitors when he discussed spiritual matters. They listened as he dictated his epistles, and you must remember, during those two years in that place, Paul wrote Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And every one of those words was heard by one of the soldiers in that unit. They were consistently bound to this man who prayed without ceasing. You talk about having a captive audience. I like what Warren Wiersbe writes. He says, little did the Romans realize that the chains they affixed to his wrist would release Paul instead of binding him. So Paul's experience shows us that nothing can stop the gospel, not even imprisonment, because God uses an opportunity for the gospel message to penetrate into the ranks of the most powerful men within that empire. And from them into the city of Rome, and then from Rome to other soldiers that were stationed all over the world. And perhaps Paul even winked at the guard who he was chained to when he wrote in Philippians 1.13, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard that I am in chains for Christ. And he winks at the guy. I can just see that, that happening. But the Praetorian Guard were not the only group of people that Paul's arrest and confinement gave him contact with. It also gave him access to the officials of the emperor's court. Paul was in Rome as an official prisoner, and his case was an important one. You see, the the Roman government had to determine the official status of this new sect, this new sect called Christianity. They wondered, was it just another sect of the Jews? Or was it something that could possibly be dangerous for Rome? Imagine how pleased Paul must have been knowing that thanks to his imprisonment, the court officials were forced to study the doctrines of the Christian faith. Perhaps he remembered God's promise found in Isaiah fifty-five eleven: My word will not return to me void, but will accomplish what I desire and will achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Another thing that Paul's confinement did was that it encouraged the other Christians in Rome to share the gospel more boldly. In other words, they decided that if, if, if God could use Paul while in chains in prison, certainly he could use them outside as they were free men and women. So Paul's courage gave everyone courage to share their faith throughout that capital city. And in Philippians 1.14, Paul referred to this when he wrote, because of my chains... Most of my brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. In short, because of Paul's imprisonment, Jesus was literally the talk of the town. And this clearly shows me that nothing stops the spread of the gospel. It should remind us of Jesus promise in Matthew 24:14 this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. In other words, the gospel will spread unhindered until all have heard it and then Jesus will return. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, the last word of the Acts in the Greek is the word unhindered. So I guess the question is, that we need to ask ourselves is, will we decide to be a part of this or will we decide to sit on the sidelines? Will we join God in telling the whole world of his love in sending Jesus? Will we accept the challenge of leading someone to the cross in order to receive salvation? These are all things that you and I, as believers in Jesus, must reconcile in our hearts. But even more importantly, we must play an active part in pursuing them as followers of Christ. Well, perhaps you might be wondering what happened to Paul, because Luke doesn't tell us. But by using historical records and tradition and other scriptures, we can piece together the story of the rest of his life. In the end of his two-year term in Rome, he was finally released from his confinement. Apparently, he did appear before the emperor. And guess what? His case was dismissed. The letter of Titus tells us that he went back to the island of Crete where he left Titus in charge of organizing the ministry there. Paul also visited Ephesus again, leaving Timothy to lead that flock. It is also very likely that he went to Spain because he had always hungered to do that. Many scholars even think he took the gospel as far as to Britain. In any case, it's clear that eventually Paul was arrested again. You see, in AD 64, Nero suddenly slammed shut the door of religious freedom in Rome. Insane, he was an insane man, he was infamously cruel, He blamed the Christians for a terrible fire in Rome that he himself had ordered to be set. And in doing so, he ignited a a, a vicious persecution of the Christians there. And Paul, no doubt, was arrested as a part of this and dragged to Rome once again as a prisoner. This time, however, instead of being allowed to, to live in a hired home, he was thrown into a dark and dingy dungeon of a prison cell. It was the Mamertine prison, which by the way, still exists in Rome today. And in in that cell, he wrote a letter to Timothy, a letter that reflected the conditions of what he was dealing with. The conditions were so cold, so dark, so dank that, that he asked Timothy to bring him a winter coat. And finally, according to tradition, he was let out of his cell one day in the early spring of A.D. 67 and taken outside the walls of Rome. They marched him to the third milestone on the Ostian Way to a little pine wood in a glade of the tombs known as Trefontaine. And there the Apostle Paul kneeled down and a sword severed his head from his body. And at that instant, the Apostle Paul went home to be with the Lord. I get emotional because I know how far I am from Paul. I get emotional when I see that kind of courage. When I see somebody put the pedal to the metal, it doesn't give a rip about what anybody thinks about his own personal safety, about his own inconvenience. He was on a mission from God to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. And he did it faithfully. Luke doesn't include this last chapter of Paul's life in the book of Acts because this is not a book about Paul. It's rather a book about the spread of the gospel. And it has continued to spread unhindered far long after his death. You see, church, Acts is literally an unfinished book. It's a book that Christians like you and me were continuing to write each and every day. Remember the literal Greek translation of the title of this book, Acts, is Acts of Apostolic People. There is no definite article, just Acts, as if there are more Acts to come, and there are. Because we as Christians, you and me, we are apostolic people. Apostolic is defined as to walk in the ways and teaching of Jesus the way the apostles did. We are to be like Peter, we are to be like Paul, we are to be like the others, we are to be people who know Jesus personally in a redemptive relationship and we bear personal witness to his presence and his power and his activity in our lives. You and I are living out subsequent chapters of the acts of apostolic people, sharing the gospel as we go about our daily lives. And we will continue to do so until Jesus takes us home when he raptures his church. So this book does not have an end. In fact, as we read the final verse, we have come not to an end, but just to the end of the beginning. When Luke says this about Paul as a tribute to you and I and every other follower of Jesus Christ in Acts 28, 31. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Scott, will you come forward and the team and help me to close this down? I'd like you all to stand to your feet if you would. I want as best as you can to think about the family member, the work associate, the neighbor, the dear friend, the owner of the business that you frequent regularly, the people that you know who need Jesus. And I would ask you, I guess more importantly, I would challenge you to begin a new chapter of Acts within your own life right now and ask God to give you direction on how and when you might have a conversation with them about Jesus. And at the same time that you would commit to always listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit when He speaks to you. And when I say that, I don't always mean an audible voice. It's just impressions that the Holy Spirit will give you to act upon. And also that you would pledge to trust in and rely on the power of God's Spirit that inhabits you instead of your own. Because we all know we don't have it in us on our own. Decide right now, here and now, that you will act when God tells you to act. Like young Samuel, say these words, speak Lord, for your servant is listening. And you, personally, you start to fulfill the great commission in your own circle of influence. We all have a circle of influence people who you've earned the right to talk to, people that you've earned the right to have a God kind of a conversation with because you've poured into their life. You're not a threat to them. They will listen to what you have to say. I'm astonished at how many times people will come to me and say, would you lead my friend to the Lord? And, And I scratch my head and I go, why do I need to lead them to the Lord? Well, you're a pastor and so are you. In fact, the truth is, I probably have a worse chance of leading them to the Lord as a complete and total stranger than you would as a dear, devoted friend. Why are we so scared to speak the name of Jesus before our non-Jesus knowing or loving friends and family members and work associates? What is it that we fear? Fear is not of the Lord, and if you fear that, you've got some praying you need to do because the enemy is is becoming an obstacle for you. You're believing the things that he's feeding into your brain. God wants to use you. My goodness, I shudder to think what would happen if every one of us just won one person to the Lord. We'd have to have two services on Sunday. And if those won one person to the Lord, we'd have to have three services on the weekend. Can you see how it goes and goes and so on and so on and so on and pretty soon, pretty soon, there's 1,500 Christians attending this church and if we're all winning souls, have to start putting satellite churches in different places in this community. That's the reality of what can happen here in Red Bluff High Point but it can't just be my passion, it's gotta be your passion. And if you feel no feelings regarding that, then you really need to spend some time in prayer. And you need to ask the Lord to break your heart for the things that break His. To have the capacity to look at people differently, to look at them as a lost soul. Is going to spend eternity in hell unless they make the most important decision of their life. That should make us all care enough to open our mouth and speak the truth and allow the Holy Spirit to use us. I want to end this service this morning by singing together. And while we do this, if you're here and you don't know Jesus this morning, you can receive salvation today. The Bible says to be saved, you must believe and confess. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that He is the Son of God. The only way to God the Father that He came to this earth, He died a horrific death, and the blood that He shed on that cross is the atoning agent to wipe away your sin. That's the belief part, the confession, is just to say that in prayer. I believe who you are, Jesus, I wanna be saved. I ask you to forgive me of my sin, become the Lord and Savior of my life. He will wash away your sin. The Bible says you will become a new creation. And you can do that from your seat, You can do that down at this altar. This altar is always open. If anybody wants to come to the altar and pray now, you can. But for those of you here today who are already in a redemptive relationship with Jesus, while we'd sing, I I really want to ask you that you would turn your heart for the next couple minutes heavenward, that you would ask God to give you a passion for the people in your circle of influence those who are lost and furthermore that you begin to act and have the courage to act on that passion maybe even a bold prayer of asking God to 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 bring an opportunity to drop it right in your lap to share your faith with others and to help you to be prepared for when that moment comes so you know what to say I've told you many times, I've talked to far too many people who said things came out of their mouths and I've experienced this myself that I didn't even know I knew. Stuff just comes. That's the Holy Spirit giving you the words to speak. And when you're done, you kind of scratch your head and you go, I am not not nearly that smart. (laughs) But God gives you the ability. He gives you the things to say. I think the greatest thing for us to pray as people who are a part of this great body, is to pray for a willingness and an availability to open our mouths and to share our faith with others. Ask God to break that fear, that yoke of fear that is upon you that prevents you from opening your mouth when you're supposed to. While we sing today, I want you to be thinking about that. I want you to be praying out to God and I want you to worship the Lord. Let's thank him this morning for all that he has done in our lives, but that we have the courage to share all of that so he can do the same in someone else's. And then I'll come back and close in prayer, Scott. At the altar, continue to pray. They can stay there as long as they would like. I'd like you to bow your heads in prayer with me. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Acts, for the instruction, for the examples. Father, you show us what it takes to spread the message of Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that this church would be a church full of people who do just that. We continually spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray against fear. I bind it in the name of Jesus. I pray that we would stand strong in who we are in Christ Jesus, that we would speak forth words of life and truth, not be concerned by what others think, not be fearful of others' opinion, but to know that we serve the risen Savior, and that we have eternal life promised to us no matter what happens on this earth. And God, as we see the foundations of this world literally breaking apart in front of our eyes, pray that you would give us courage to know that the time is short. There are many that are lost, that need a relationship with you. They need to be redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Father, help us to do our job as a church and help us to do our job as individuals and to go forth and to fulfill the commission that you've given us. Father, I thank you for my church family. What a blessing they are to this community, but what a blessing they are to me and my family personally. Lord, I ask that uh, you bless them as they leave here today and as they we go our separate ways, Father, that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct our steps. The places we go, the things we do, the conversations that we have, Lord, that those conversations would always build people up and not tear them down. Father, let us shine like bright lights in a dark world. Let the love of Christ come shining through us brightly so others know that there's something different about us. And Father, open up doors of opportunities for us to share who you are with others. And most importantly, Lord, give us the courage to walk through those doors when you open them and to boldly proclaim who you are and what you've done in our lives and to express why they need Jesus in their own life. Father, I also pray that till we meet together again, that you would keep us safe from accidents that might befall us. You would keep us safe from sickness or disease until we can gather together again as a church family and worship you in spirit and in truth. And as we go our separate ways today, Father, I pray that that we would go in love The kind of love that you shared with everyone while you were here. And I ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here today.